Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Welcome back to our study, Understanding the Gospels. Uh, We are in week two, and this week we want to begin our process of walking through each individual gospel account. So starting today with the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember last week, we challenged you to compare the gospels by studying them horizontally, noticing some of the differences and the storylines of each individual gospel and comparing them as well as perhaps harmonizing them together as we're doing on Sunday morning in our sermon series. We also found that there's strength in reading the Gospels uh, vertically by looking at each individual Gospel account and noticing how they are different, but following their plot line as well as some of the themes that come up in each. So we're going to do a little bit of both of those today, studying the Gospels horizontally as well as vertically. This week, um, we are asking this question to open up. Who Who was Matthew? In fact, even as you're driving along, listening online, um, this, this lesson uh, did not record during the class hour. So I uh, really wanted to record it just for those of you who listen online. It's a question for you. What is it from the Bible that we know about this person named Matthew? Now, I know that there are debates and discussions about who authored each of these Gospels. I tend to land, without going into too much detail, I'd land uh, on Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, as being the author of this book. And so, what do we know about him from Scripture? Well, one of the things we know is that he was a tax collector. And as you read even the Gospel accounts themselves, you realize that tax collectors were not looked upon all that highly by um, those who were uh, Jewish people. And so we know this about Matthew, and one of the things that pops out and stands out as we read Matthew's gospel vertically is that Matthew, at times, seems to be interested in numbers. Uh, That perhaps shouldn't surprise us, um, as Matthew wouldn't have lived and and dealt with numbers all of the time. But as we we look through, we notice a few other things about Matthew. He He was a disciple of Jesus. And as we read his gospel, one of the things we we can read into it, is that Matthew's gospel seems to have a concern for the Jewish people. In fact, I think there's a reason why canonically um, it is first amongst the four gospels, why it comes in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Um, Part of it is that Matthew does perhaps the most work to build a bridge between what has happened in the Old Testament and what is about to happen in Jesus's ministry. I find it perhaps devotional that Matthew, who by some of his own people would have been considered a traitor, has at his very heart a concern that they understand who the Messiah is. So every week over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about kind of a portrait or a perspective that the individual gospel writers paint of Jesus. And if I were going to put a title on Matthew's gospel, here's the one I would put. I would put Jesus, the Messianic King for all people. Matthew seems to have this concern, this uh, focus on Jesus as the, the king who is in the line of David. And so you'll hear him talk about the kingdom and you'll see him emphasize that Jesus comes from that Davidic line. 
So as for a case study, to slow down and to notice this right away, uh, we want to study this opening chapter, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And one of the things you'll notice when you turn there, or even in your mind if you're driving along as you turn there, is that Matthew opens up his gospel uh, in a unique way. Uh, he opens it up with a genealogy, a list of names. Now, if you're like me, most often, um, when I'm reading through this, there's at least a part of me that goes, okay, list of names, let's move on down through this and get going on in the following verse, verse 18, as the story kicks off. But we need to understand some things about this genealogy that Matthew puts first. Um, it's not on accident, first of all. But we, we also would understand this. There's a Jewish concern for genealogy. I mean, we flip over to the Old Testament and we see genealogies all over the place. So what is it about this genealogy and what is it about Matthew that causes him to put it here first? I love what Francis Watson says about this genealogy. Here's what he says. The genealogy is not just about family or descent or heredity. Rather, it's a highly condensed summary of the scriptural history of Israel. Just as Jesus is shaped in Mary's womb, so he is also shaped by story. Condensing down what he says, here's what I think is going on. This genealogy is a rewinding of the tape. It rewinds the tape and causes us to relive the story of the Old Testament. And it causes us to live it right up until the time where Jesus is born. Jesus is an extension of the Old Testament story. It's not a new page, not a fresh start. It's coming right out of the story that God has been doing since the very creation of the world, specifically as Matthew is concerned, since Abraham was given the promise that his descendants would become as numerous as the stars and the sand and that they would bless all people. Or since the time when David was given the promise that he would always have a son who would reign on a throne and reign as a king. So we study this genealogy. It starts out in this way, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice how Matthew underlines, in a way of priority, these two names out of the genealogy that follows. Son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus, when it comes to Matthew's concern, is very well connected into the Jewish story. And then Matthew starts with Abraham and walks through this list of names, leading right up to the birth of Jesus through Mary. Now, there's names that should surprise us. There's several mentioning of women throughout this genealogy. Uh, quite frankly, women who had stories that were a little bit sketchy. Why would Matthew do that? Perhaps it's to, to highlight the fact that God works through uh, characters who aren't perfect, and, and, and characters who aren't well put together, but God brings about his purposes anyway. But if you notice the mention of Mary at the end of this story, perhaps one of the things that highlights to you is this, is that God uses people who sometimes are questioned for their integrity. Or sometimes they have reason to be, uh, thus in the story of David and Bathsheba. But here we have Mary, this story, this concern that, uh, that we should have for her in the story, that God has put her in this difficult, uncomfortable circumstance. And yet... Um, here she is in this genealogy filled with names of people that perhaps, um, in a distant way, uh, she can relate to. God is bringing about his story through the story. 
Now, Matthew also breaks up this genealogy in key narrative moves of the Old Testament people. And so we have mention of things like the deportation to Babylon and them coming back out of Babylon. We have these kinds of stories that rewind the tape for us. And so I encourage you, I know that, uh, again, you're studying online. You may need to uh, pause or later on go back and study this text. But walk through looking for key stories and key names and key ideas that we could pull out. Perhaps the key name in this story is the name of David. Uh, I think that Matthew intentionally is trying to communicate that Jesus is in line uh, to be the king that David was promised, that the people through David were promised. So in verse 17, we have this bookend that comes back to Abraham and David. Verse 17 says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. It seems kind of weird, this 14 and 14 and 14. One of the things we need to understand is that in this genealogy, In fact, it's King James that would say, this person begat this person. One of the things we need to understand is that this is not talking about a one-to-one genealogy. In other words, this person was the father of, and there aren't missing generations in between. The begat terminology in the old King James is sometimes helpful. For instance, my grandfather is, the, in this sense of the phrase, the father of my son. Well, he begat him through the genealogy. So we have names that are missing is what I'm trying to say here. But Matthew has structured it in a way to where we have this 14, 14, 14. Why is that important? Here's why I think that's important. Um, For those who are listening into this story, um, they would have recognized David's name as a number. King David's name. Now you might think, well, that's odd. How can that be? Well, for those who were Jewish, their numbers were their letters. And David's name was the number 14. And so kind of an oversimplistic way um, to explain it, Matthew is saying over and over again, Jesus is David. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And he does that in this genealogy. So this is, that's highly technical, but this is something unique to, to Matthew's gospel that we need to understand. He is underlining over and over again at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus is the son of David. In fact, later on, as the angel appears to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, the angel says. And we have this. Now, notice what happens in chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have a king of Israel. And you know his name. His name is Herod. So now what we have are two kings in the opening two chapters, back to back, who very much contrast each other. We have the son of David and this illegitimate king that sits on the throne. And as we study Matthew's gospel, we have that highlighted for us. We could also take another study. We could, we could compare this opening of the gospel of Matthew and compare it to the closing of the gospel of Matthew. And here's what we discover. Jesus at the end of the gospel will come and he'll have um, this great commission. And perhaps you know what he will say there in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And we have highlighted for us this, this bookend that we have two themes here. In the genealogy... We underline the names Abraham and David. And at the end of the book, 
Jesus, in this great commission, underlines the fact that he has fulfilled the two promises given to those two key characters. Now, I'll acknowledge, man, this is easy for me to miss. But notice what Matthew's doing here for his his audience, for those who are specifically uh, Jewish people. Uh, They're waiting for someone to come and fulfill this promise to Abraham, this promise to David, to to be a person of authority and a person who will help bless the nations. Jesus comes and says, all authority, like the king, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, the promise given to Abraham. Now, there's other things that tie these opening and clo- this opening and closing together as well. Both of them focus on the Old Testament and Old Testament being fulfilled. And so we have numerous quotes of the Old Testament in both of these. Uh, there's a focus in both of them on the presence of God being true in the beginning of this gospel. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. At the end, Jesus says, And surely I will be with you always, even to the very, to the very end of the age. Both the beginning and the end emphasize worship, but also the rejection of the Messiah. And so we have the the wise men, the magi, coming to worship. But those who are Jewish leaders, like Herod, rejecting the Messiah. And thus, also at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have the unlikely people worshiping Jesus at the cross and the likely people rejecting him. So as we walk through, we notice this, you know, in kind of this vertical study, this vertical observation of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if we were going to outline Matthew, I think one of the things we'd want to understand is that right at the, in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, Peter makes a confession of who he believes Jesus is. In the middle of this Gospel, in Matthew chapter 16, Peter confesses, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this part of the narrative, both in Matthew and I'm going to argue in Mark's gospel as well, serves as a hinge where we start to discover not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but also that he's a Messiah who's going to end up suffering and going to a cross. And so Matthew's gospel, if we were going to outline it, could look like this. Chapters 1 through 4, preparation for ministry. So all of the birth narratives leading up to that. Chapter 4 through 1620, the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. And then chapter 16 all the way through 28 is this progression to the cross and the resurrection that bring about the kingdom of heaven. As we walk through this gospel, over and over again, we rewind the tape and hear echoes of Israel's story. In this gospel, more than any other, Jesus looks like Moses. In the infancy story, Jesus looks like Moses in the massacre of babies and the flight to Egypt, the wilderness preparation before ministry, the 40 days instead of 40 years. And even as Jesus teaches on a mountain, Jesus here looks like a new Moses. In fact, you could break up Matthew's gospel into five blocks of teaching. Um, Over and over again, it will have this phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and when you compare these blocks, these blocks of teaching, these blocks of story, as you read through Matthew's gospel, one of the things you'll discover is that we could break Matthew's gospel into five segments of story and teaching. Now, why is that important? Well, if you discover that Moses wrote five books and that Moses' five books of teaching 
can be echoed in these five blocks of teaching. Matthew is saying Jesus is the new teacher. He is the new Moses. And, and God is revealing himself afresh in the story of Jesus. Moses was also a person who taught from mountains. And so Matthew is not surprising that he also emphasizes mountains. And in your handout, we mention a few of them. But Matthew ends the temptation account on the mountain, unlike Luke, who ends it in the temple. Matthew talks about the Sermon on the Mount when no one else does. But Jesus prays on a mountain, heals on the mountain. He's transfigured with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And it comes out that Jesus is actually greater than Moses and Elijah, the teacher and the prophet of Israel. There is stories of Jesus talking about removing mountains or seeking the lost in the mountains. The Olive Mountain is part of the the last narrative of Jesus, let alone the fleeing to the mountains and the Betrayal Mountain where Jesus is betrayed. And then, of course, the very end, the Great Commission Mountain. Over and over again, mountains play a key role in this gospel. The word fulfilled is another distinctive. Uh, Fifteen times in the book of Matthew, he tells us, thus it was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled. This scripture was fulfilled. We're reminded again that the character of this gospel seems to have focus on those who were concerned about the Old Testament story, those who would have a perhaps a Jewish background. Jesus is mentioned as king or son of David more times in this gospel than any of the others. Righteousness is mentioned in this gospel, and discipleship is a major theme that is traced throughout this gospel. As we study along... One of the other interesting things we discover is that Matthew is the only one to use the word church. Now, I don't know how significant this is, but it is interesting that Matthew mentions this word three times in chapter 16 as well as in 18. Um, This word church is something maybe even outside of the gospel of study of Matthew we need to understand. Uh, This word in the Greek language really just means gathering, a gathering or an assembly of people. Similar to what synagogue means, a bringing together of, of people. And that church was more people-focused than building-focused. In fact, it's not until we have the German word where we get our word church that it almost insinuates a physical location more than it does a spiritual people. I think we would do well to, as I think Matthew even has in mind, to recognize that when we live like Jesus... We take his presence, we take the Holy Spirit with us, and we live it wherever we are. And sometimes it is when we gather, and sometimes that is in a building. Um, But we also take this presence, and we are the church outside of those four walls uh, from day to day and week to week. One of the other things that we find interesting, and and we talked about in class, for those of you who are learning online, um, you're not able to listen into the discussion, but I'd encourage you to look into it. Uh, we were able to discuss some of the geographic places that pop up in the book of Matthew. Uh, We talked about chapters 14 and 15 and the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And one of the things you'll discover is that Jesus moves from predominantly Jewish territory to the fringe of what is Gentile territory in these two feedings. And that there is, in the middle of this, Uh, several stories that deal with unclean people and unclean food. And then we have the feeding of the 4,000 at the end, which again is on this, the fringe of Jewish territory. And we said, notice what seems to be taking place here is that this bread is for Israel. This, this miracle of manna that looks like what God did for Israel in the wilderness. 
And yet at the end of the story, the Gentiles or the outsiders seem to be included in this promise as well. And we have this, what we called in class, geographic theology, that Jesus has come not only for those who are Jewish, but also for those who are the nations around. We studied in class two great commissions. Um, In fact, I would say one of them is the great one. Um, The other one is the unfortunate one. And and I've never done this study before this last uh, few weeks uh, to notice this. But in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, there's another commission that that takes place in the story. And these two really stand back to back to one another. And we can compare uh, them to each other. Notice what happens in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, so here's the commission, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread amongst the Jews until this day. So here's a commission. Tell people his disciples came at night and stole him away while they were asleep. Matthew's unique in sharing this story. And this story apparently had been spread just as the story of Jesus' resurrection had been spread. And Matthew gives us some background into the comparison of these two commissions and really to the nature of them. One of deceit, one of lie, one of money, and one that is the good news of Jesus' resurrection. So here's what I want to encourage you to do as we dive into the next few weeks. I know that um, we've walked through some things rather quickly for you, and, and, uh, and you've really not had the opportunity to hear some of the class discussion uh, over this, video, this audio recording. Um, I would encourage you, if you are interested in the handouts that we're using in class, to email me. My email address is dalrymple.jim at occ.edu. Uh, that is spelled D-A-L-R-Y-M-P-L-E dot Jim at O-C-C E-D-U. I would love to give these handouts to, or get these handouts to you as well as answer any questions that you have as you listen and learn online. Again, study these Gospels both horizontally, comparing them to each other, but also vertically, noticing some of the things that take place as you follow the plot line, as you follow the themes Uh, throughout each of these Gospels. I hope that this study is going to be helpful for you as we move along the next few weeks. God bless. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.